G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. But you're a child of the living God. And as a child of the living God, you're to have the heart of the Father. Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Coming up, it's a new message called Matthew's Party. Matthew was a tax collector, and after Jesus tells him to follow me, he invites Jesus to his house for dinner. What can we learn from his example? Matthew hears that, and he says, you know what? I'm ready. Enough dilly-dally. I'm changing the direction of my life. I'm doing a 180. I'm following Jesus. He leaves everything. He follows Jesus. I'm sure his palms are sweating. There's a lump in his throat, and his heart's beating fast. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. While you're going there, I want to say something to you that I think is going to be a great starter for what we need to do together this morning. And that is this, that you know and you're aware that I, I've, uh, part of my ministry in New Zealand was to, to debate, open debate in universities or in the public arena, uh, those who were anti-God or anti-Christian, and those were friendly debates, but at the same time, even friendly debates can get a little aggressive from time to time. And here's what I want you to notice, that no matter what happened on the stage during these debates, it was always going to be different from what actually happened in the parking lot after the debate. So while they're having, we're having these discussions on stage, I would always walk the guy that I was debating or the university professor or whatever out to the parking lot and we would talk. Our conversations in the parking lot were totally different than what happened here. And let me tell you what I've discovered. 99.9% of the time, people really aren't anti-God, anti-Christian. They're not. But usually, you remember the line from Macbeth, methinks thou dost protest too much? That the louder somebody screams of... I don't believe in God, or I don't want God, or I don't need God. In many, many ways, I've discovered that is a way of crying out, please, somebody help me. Because something has happened in my life that has destroyed my faith. God did not deliver me when I expected him to deliver me, or he allowed this horrible thing to happen to me. So if God is real, where is God? That is the dilemma that so many of us faith face because none of our lives turn out the way we think they ought to turn out. And God definitely doesn't step in and do what we think he ought to do. Now that's a whole nother sermon. The point I'm making is this, that when you talk to someone on the stage during a debate, and when you go out in the parking lot with them and you start to talk about life, there are serious wounds in people's lives. They really are crying for help, but they want real help from real people. Now, when you turn over to Matthew chapter 9, we're going we're gonna to encounter somebody that in, as far as the Bible goes, they were about as far away from God as you can imagine. And by way of just introducing this, this uh, verse in, in uh, Matthew 9, this chapter, have you ever uh, been wrong about anything? Okay, now if I ask the wives, I'm sure we'd have a long list right now. 
But have you, ever, have you ever thought that this experience over here that you might have, you just want to avoid it because you're scared to death. If you ever had to do that, something horrible would happen. So you build it up, build it up over a lifetime. And then something happens to you where you actually have to experience that thing that you most don't want to experience. And it's totally different than what it was before you experienced it. Anything like that. Not like, like for instance, for me, it was getting stitches. Now, I did not want anybody... I did not want to go to the doctor and have some doctor take a needle and thread and sew me up. So when some, and I got a lot of deep cuts when I was young because I had three brothers. We about killed each other. You know how that goes. And there were times I had cuts. I've got a big gash here that I won't show you, but you'll just trust me that if I would have gone to the doctor and allowed him to sew me up, I probably wouldn't have this scar right here or back here or right over here. But I just screamed at my parents, please, anything but stitches, anything, anything, root canal, what, no stitches. Because I'd had friends who had gone to the doctor to get stitches and never returned from the hospital. And so that, at least that's the way I, I perceived it. But I was 17 years old. I had avoided stitches for a long time and I was roller skating in the basement of the family home. I had gotten taller and the roller skates made me even taller. And there was a pipe sticking down out of the ceiling that had a sharp edge on it. And I just roller skated right into that pipe, put a big gash in my head. And my mom said to me, look, I know you don't like stitches, but it's either stitches or death. And that's a close call for me. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll go. So I went. And the good thing about getting injured in the head like that is God created a, a, an incredible human body. Your, your head actually gets numb. And then, so it was still numb by the time the doctor put the needle in to numb it. So I didn't feel either one. And so I'm saying, okay, when you, when you, when you give me that first stitch, tell me doc. And of course, by that time it was over. And when it was over and I was all sewed up, they actually gave me ice cream, which is my Achilles heel. I love ice cream. So getting stitches actually became an enjoyable experience, one that I had been afraid of for most of my life. Now, that's a great way to introduce what I want to talk about, because that's so similar to describing the very first time I walked across the room. It was in Auckland, New Zealand. I'd been asked to be the chaplain of the North Harbor Kings, the basketball team with my friend, Tony Bennett, who was the coach. And I was getting to know these guys playing basketball. Now, this is when I was in my early thirties, so I could still move up and down the court pretty good. It's amazing what 15 years will do to you. And so I'm moving. Yeah, I hear you, brother. I hear you. And so I'm moving up and down the court. You know, I'm having fun. I can beat most of the guys one-on-one. -on -one, so they have a respect for me. So they'll listen to some of the things I say, but it was about the third, fourth, maybe fifth game of the season that I was in the locker room and just overwhelmed again by what God wanted me to do. Because I noticed after every game, you know what goes on in the locker room after a basketball game, especially in New Zealand, right? Two topics of conversation. The first topic is about conquest later that evening that most men hope to accomplish. And the second thing is how much booze can we drink before midnight? Those are the two topics of conversation. And I'm listening to all this and I'm in my little corner of the locker room as everybody's kind of finishing the game and we were good. So we had a lot of victories and that you even party more when you have victories. And so I'm with my friend, Tony Bennett and another Christian guy. And as we're in this little circle, I don't call it whatever you want, but it's like God said to me, what are you doing? I have inspired. I have sovereignly ordained these moments. And every time you come into the locker room, you gather over here in your little circle and there's all these guys that I want you to walk across the room and begin to talk to. And as soon as the spirit of God kind of impacted me that way, I looked right into the eyes of big Andrew. Now, Andrew was the biggest player and the biggest little hellion on the basketball team. His whole thing was about self-aggrandizement, women and conquest and booze and everything, partying. And, I'm, and I start to talk to God like you would. I'd say, no, God, I'm not going. 
No, 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 no. And God says, yes, yes, yes. And I say, no, 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 I'm not going. And I start to make excuses for why I'm not going to do this. God, I'm just gaining their respect. If I go over there and talk to him about Jesus, he's going to think I'm weird. He's not going to play basketball with me. He's going to avoid me. God said, I want you to go. No, I'm not going. And I had a lump in my throat. My palms were sweaty. My heart was beating fast because I knew God wanted me. So I took the first step. I started to walk toward Andrew. As I'm walking toward big Andrew, I know what he's thinking about. But what I'm thinking about, I'm trying to think, okay, what am I going to say? So I get the church language that had been installed into me so deeply through my young church life that I'm going to say, hey, brother, do you know Jesus? Or I'm going to say, hey, would you like a copy of the Bible? Let's read the Bible. Something like that. But thank God, and I think it was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, about two steps before I got to Andrew, basically said this to me. No, that's not the way. Here's what I want you to do. And here's my first comment. The first words out of my mouth to Andrew, it was this. Would you like to come over to my house and watch NBA basketball? Because every Wednesday night in New Zealand, they showed NBA basketball from the States. And Sky uh, Television was a new thing. So Andrew looked at me and he said, you got Sky TV? I said, yeah, you want to come? He says, I'll be there. And he came that Wednesday night and the next Wednesday night and the next Wednesday night. Next thing you know, I'm putting up a hoop in the driveway. We're playing one-on-one basketball. Tony Bennett starts coming over, the player coach. We start having a good time. We start ordering pizza. Andrew starts to bring his girlfriend that will later become his wife. And we're just having a good time. About eight months into it, Tony Bennett just out of the blue says, hey, why don't we study the Bible tonight after the game? Andrew said, yeah, that's kind of cool. What is the Bible? Tell me about this. And we start sharing with him the hope that we feel, the difference Christ has made in our lives. Next thing you know, We're studying the Bible together. It doesn't bother Andrew. Life goes on. Now, here's what's amazing to me about that. I just received an email two months ago from my friend Andrew. He lives in Christchurch now. And in the email, as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, you have got to be kidding me. This is crazy. Because he's talking about the difference Christ has made in his life. He talks about how his marriage is getting stronger, how he's reading the Bible, and how he found a good church. And I just have to keep putting the email down. You've got to be kidding. This guy's so far from God, no way he's ever going to cross over. And I started to think, did it all start simply because at one point, at one time, I was willing to walk across the room. That's all. You see, here's the problem. When we think about evangelism, we think about a tall order because to most of us, evangelism is like losing weight. We really like it when it happens, but we're not sure we're willing to pay the price it takes to get there, right? But yet it's in you. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Pastor Jeff is preaching about the disciple Matthew, a tax collector. He threw a dinner party at his house, attended by Jesus and others, giving the disciples an opportunity to build relationship with unbelievers. I saw the look in your faces last week when I talked to you about those prisoners in Africa that had no hope and how they came back to God. I saw a lot of tears in this place. I was on KKLA on Thursday. Anybody hear the interview? Frank Pastore and I are talking about Rwanda. The same thing happens to him. And Frank hears a lot of great stories. And you got the program director behind the screen saying, no, let him keep going. We want to hear this. Let him keep going. So I keep going. If you heard the interview, remember how fast I was talking? About as fast as I'm talking right now. Because I got a lot of things to cover in about 25 minutes. But I saw the look on your faces. I saw the look on Frank's face. And I'm telling you, it's in you. It's in you because you're wired. You're wired that you're moved by that. But the problem is, while you have great passion for people across the ocean... You don't have great passion for people across the office, people across the street, people across the dorm room, people across the room. Now, here's what we learned when we came together. We had this startling application that we've forgotten who we are. There are people in this room right now 
that have experienced something horrific in their lives and they've forgotten who they are. You are a child of the living God. And as a child of the living God, even though you may not have an exhaustive understanding of everything, you never are because you're not God. If you understood everything, you'd be God. It's not your turn yet. But you're a child of the living God. And as a child of the living God, you're to have the heart of the Father. And the heart of the Father is for those who are far away from him. That's his greatest passion. That's what we learn. As a matter of fact, I want to go a step beyond that today. That when you have an encounter with Jesus, there is a cause and effect relationship that is seen in no other life as great it is seen in the, in the life of a man named Matthew, one of Jesus' earliest disciples, who people would have looked at Matthew in his day and said, man, this guy is far away from God. Here's how the story begins. As Jesus went on from there, he saw, this is verse 9, a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, I want to talk to you about Matthew for a moment. Act like you've never heard this story. Because what did Matthew do for a living? Tax collector. Now, you know about tax collectors, right? You're as far away from God as possible if you're a tax collector in the Hebrew culture. Why? Because you're a traitor to the people. You're worse than a Roman because a Roman at least doesn't know. You know better. And Rome had one intent in mind. Let's get as much money as we can from the Hebrew boys. Tax them to death. But they were wise. And the first century historian Josephus says that the Romans didn't go around to collect the taxes. They wanted Hebrew men who would serve as traitors to the cause to collect the taxes. So Hebrew men like Zacchaeus would come and bid on a certain territory. They would come to the Romans, Zacchaeus would come to the Romans and say, I think I can get $10,000 in taxes out of Jerusalem. And the Romans would say, okay, Zacchaeus, you won the bid, it's yours. And everything you get on top of that, you get to keep. So it's automatically assumed by the Hebrews that tax collectors are guilty of massive dishonesty. So much so there was a saying in the first century, for tax collectors, repentance is hard. Because if you repent, you've got to restore that which you've taken. And tax collectors have taken so much money from so many people, it would be impossible to go back and remember. Which, was, which is what makes Zacchaeus' words that he was willing after his encounter with Jesus to repay four times what he had taken, that much more astounding. But that's the cause and effect of Jesus. Now listen, no one in the eyes of first century culture is farther from God. And here's, what, here's what's even more interesting. Matthew's a bad tax collector. He's not even good at his job. He's not like Zacchaeus, who lives over in Jericho in the high rent district, enjoying all the palm trees and the sycamore trees. He can climb one to see Jesus, and he did. No, no, you know what Matthew's doing? He's sitting out on the toll road. He's a toll booth kind of guy. Takes taxes as people come by, walking by, you owe your taxes. And, and, and there was a road that led from Egypt to Damascus and Matthew's position out on this road. When we were in Zimbabwe, by the way, there's only one road that runs through the country, Highway 1. And we're coming down Highway 1 to go down to the village of Mondaro. There's a big cardboard sign with black crayon written by the police that says toll road, one US dollar but there's no road. There's no road. It's just another way to collect taxes from the people. You want to roll down the window and say, hey, there's no road. But it doesn't matter. You probably get thrown in jail. The point is, no one likes tax collectors. I, living in California, my, my love for them is not increasing. <laughs> but the bottom line is, in, in the Hebrew culture, this guy's a long way from God. Jesus comes up to the toll booth one day and he says, Matthew, stop your job. Come follow me. Now, you think that's all there is to the story, but I'm telling you, it, there would have to be a lot more than that. 
You say, man, Jesus is powerful. He just says, come. And Matthew leaves there. No, listen. Matthew's probably been listening to Jesus for a long time. Probably closes down the toll booth early to go over and listen to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He listens to Jesus talk about love, mercy, and grace, and how the religious people and tax collectors are on the same plateau in the eyes of God. This encourages him. It motivates him. And the truth is just pounding. He starts losing sleep at night. He finds it difficult to work and keep his mind on the job because he knows he should follow Jesus, but he just can't pull the trigger. He's had all the information that he needs and he knows he needs to make a change. He knows there's great hope here. He knows that if he could step across that chasm, life would change. Doesn't mean nothing bad would ever happen to him, but he would see it from a totally different perspective. And what happens? Jesus comes to him at the toll booth one day, knowing Matthew's had all the information he's ever gonna need. And he says, look, Matthew, it's time to follow me. You got all the information you're ever gonna get. Time to pull the trigger, drop anchor, cowboy up. Let's go. Matthew hears that and he says, you know what? I'm ready. Enough dilly-dally. I'm changing the direction of my life. I'm doing a 180. I'm following Jesus. He leaves everything. He follows Jesus. I'm sure his palms are sweating. There's a lump in his throat and his heart's beating fast. Now here's the question. What is the first thing Matthew does? What is the first thing he does after he has this encounter with Jesus? Look at it. It's actually in Luke, but look at it on the screen. Then Levi, that's Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. This is the cause and effect I've been talking about. Here's what Matthew's doing. Listen, <laughs> Matthew's been just overwhelmed by Jesus. The same thing that could happen to you if you just crossed the chasm. And stop thinking you have to have every question answered because you're not God. And he finally steps across the chasm. When he does, he realizes, man, Wow, clarity is central. Chaos is only peripheral now. It's true, I don't understand the answers to all questions, but the big ones are answered. Life, meaning, destiny, purpose, the effects of sin in the world and how it, it, it just hampers all of us to some degree or another, but there's hope. But he's got a problem. He wants to communicate this to all his old buddies at work, but he doesn't know how because eternal life and heaven and hope is all new to him. So, so how can he communicate it? So he starts thinking. He's got this burning desire, and all of a sudden it dawns him, I know what I'll do. I'll throw a big party. That's right. I'll throw a party, and I'll throw this party, and I'll invite my old friends from my old life and my new friends from my new life in hopes that my new friends will walk across the room to talk to my old friends. See, Matthew doesn't know what to say or where to begin, so he just throws this party and throws everybody together in hopes that this great banquet will catalyze something. That some of his old friends would be open to the moving of the Spirit of God and will come into the kingdom all because of this party. So they're pumped. They're thrilled. He's happy. He just combines them, and he hopes that life change will occur. And he sells that idea, I believe, to Jesus. He said, Jesus, I got an idea. I don't know what to say, but I'm just going to throw these things together. And I think Jesus says, out of boy, Matthew, man, you're thinking. You plan the party. I'll bring the boys, the disciples. Now imagine what happens at a party like this. Imagine, you got the disciples and all the sinners. Eating, drinking, being, there's probably wine. <laughs> and good dessert, great food. Imagine the topic of conversation now. Let's use Peter as an example. You know, Peter says, well, I, you know, I've got all these, I need to walk across the room. So he walks across the room, goes over and introduces himself. Hi, my name is Peter. Peter, what do you do? Well, I'm a fisherman. 
Well, how's business? Well, you tell you the truth, it wasn't very good, but a couple of weeks ago, this guy, Jesus over here, comes walking on my boat. I don't even invite him, but we're all out fishing. No one's catching anything. I mean, it's horrible. This guy comes out, this guy, it's not even a fisherman. He has the, he has the audacity to tell me to drop the net on the right side of the boat as if the little fish swim in one area and the boat just stays straight. Drop it on the right side of the boat, right side of the boat, he says. But I figure, what I got to lose, man? I'm not catching anything, so I drop it on the right side. Boom! Nets just filled with fish. And it's, it's so many fish, I almost break the net, pull it in. The guy says, so what you're telling me is Jesus is a great business leader, good CEO. He can grow your business. Productivity. Well, that's amazing. So how's the fishing business now? Well, not very good. I quit. Well, you quit? You quit? You met this guy who can grow your business and it can expand and you can prosper and you quit? He goes, yeah, yeah, I, uh, I'm a fisher of men now. Excuse me? I'm a fisher of men. Why? Well, you know, the retirement benefits are good. Heaven, streets of gold, all that stuff, mansion. (laughs) And the conversation starts. It just starts from right there. And they're sharing their lives and their stories. That's what Matthew wanted. He didn't know how to do it, but he had a passion. So he takes the people from his old life, puts them together with the people from his new life and hoping that the people from the new life will just walk across the room. And the conversation and relationships begin. Thank you for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. That's it for today. But next time we'll continue to discuss Matthew's party and the opportunities it presented for the disciples and others in Matthew's life who didn't know Jesus to connect. We have holy huddle syndrome. We eat with Christians. We have coffee with Christians. We play golf with Christians. We play basketball with Christians. We eat out with Christians. We're not a little protective bubble. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.